even after I started Tokyo Smoke and over the last few years, I still get it. It's like my friends, my family would be like, why would you leave your high paying banking job that people work so hard to get to, to join this industry that isn't even legal yet, to join a startup that doesn't have a proven business model yet? Why would you do that? I was like, if I don't take this risk now, when am I taking that risk? The cannabis industry in Canada is worth $9.6 billion. And since becoming legal in October 2019, trade has grown by 185%. There is big money in cannabis. But one thing that money hasn't brought is a clear playbook. For those working in it, it's the Wild West. On today's show, I speak to Mimi Lamb, CEO and co-founder of Superette, an award-winning cannabis retailer and lifestyle brand in Canada about what it's like to own and expand a retail brand in this Wild West cannabis world, and what it's like to be one of the only women at the top. In this episode, she shares about trusting her gut and choosing to leave corporate banking for the startup world in an industry she didn't know, taking on the role of Director of Corporate Development at Tokyo Smoke, where she was the brains behind the finances, supporting and negotiating their eventual sale to Canopy Growth for $250 million. We also talk about what it takes to make great leaps and how her journey from leaving corporate to then startup and then to entrepreneurship really gave her permission to truly be herself. Straight from Toronto and one of the most humble humans I've met, here's Mimi on Didn't See That Coming. Hey Mimi, welcome to the show. Hi, Zoe. Thanks for having me. Oh, thank you. I know, actually, especially with this day, that for most people in lockdown and juggling work from home, that the end of this week is a great day to celebrate. But for you guys, it's a really special day. What's happening for you? Today is October 9th, which is a really special day in the history of Superette, which is not something that many people know outside of just me and my co-founder, but it's actually our official two-year anniversary today of Superette Story. Well, even most of our team hadn't even joined at this point, so it was just the two of us trucking along, and to, to think back that that was two years ago, sometimes it feels like yesterday, and the other times it feels like 10 years ago. I don't know, man. But it's been really exciting. Lots of change. We've lived many different lives, I feel like, over the course of two years, and we're only getting started. Oh, that's so exciting. It's nice to know that you're at the beginning of such a wild adventure to come. Yeah. Now, I'm sure today you've got lots happening. I'm sure it's a really busy day. So I'm going to just jump straight in and I'm going to maybe throw you a little bit of a curveball. So tell me, if your best friend wrote a book about you as a kid, what would it be called? As a kid? Yeah. Oh, man. The girl who never left her piano. Yeah, right. If I took it back to like way back when, I was a very different person, did many different things to what I'm doing now. And back then, I was known as the girl who played piano. It sounds like from that description of your book that you were probably quite an introverted kid. Is that right? I would definitely say I was much more introverted than I am today. But that's been a function of what I've I've been exposed to, especially over the last few years. For the people who've taken like their Myers-Briggs, I am tested as introverted. And so even as I go out a lot, I do draw my energy from being by myself and recharging and having that alone time. But if anything, when I was growing up, people would say I was a bit of a loner, to be honest. Stuck to myself, didn't have much confidence, didn't know how to talk to or approach people. And so it was a very different me. 
for the listeners, the person that I'm looking at is wide-eyed, very comfortable sitting in front of a camera. So it's actually quite wild to think of you doing a podcast right now and thinking about you being a quiet loner. And I think that's what makes your story so fascinating is to hear what eventuates from being this quite quiet child. And from what you said, the child who always played piano. Yeah, even like two years ago, I would not agree to this at all. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I love this. Okay, this is wonderful because I love the ethos around taking risks and being brave. I feel like there's a common thread through your life. And I'm really excited to talk more about that. And I have to ask quickly, what is your Myers-Briggs? I'm very nosy. INFP. Ah, so I'm ENFP. So we are like the perfect balance, the yin and the yang. How cool. I love that. (laughs) Now, with your life, I know that you were traveling, you were in a cover band, you got your scuba license in Thailand. And these were some super daredevil things, especially now knowing what you said you were like as a kid. And this is when you went to the Shanghai International School of Business. So what word would you use to describe that time for you and that development for you? Exhilarating. It was amazing. It was scary, but it was really, really awesome. So I grew up quite sheltered and, like I said, quite shy and didn't do much with my life outside of go to school, play piano, stuck to what I know, and that was it. And that was a function of my upbringing and just my lack of confidence at that time. And so when I went to university, I took a program called International Business at Carleton University in Ottawa. And the only reason why I chose that program was they were pitching that program to high school students. They said, on third year, you get to go on a one-year exchange, and that's part of the curriculum. And in my head, because I hadn't really traveled much before then, I was like, one year away from this country? Yes, sign me up. And that was literally nice. the only reason why I chose that program. Actually, when I applied for university, I thought I was going to be a lawyer because I watched a lot of Judge Judy during that time. I thought I was going to get... Excellent viewing. Exactly. And I was like, I'm going to get my pre-law or some sort of degree and then go into law school and become this like hotshot criminal lawyer, which is not even what Judge Judy is. But in regardless, that's what I thought. Little did I know that I was actually going to fully utilize my business degree. And that one year exchange in my third year university was pivotal in my life. It was the first time that I got to tune in to what I wanted. And it was the first time I had to figure things out in a different country, speaking a different language. And many times just not knowing what was going on or what was going to come next. So you just had to figure it out. And it was truly an eye-opening experience. Yeah. Wouldn't change it for the world. One of the reasons why I was even like aspiring that lawyer path or going on exchange was as much as I was introverted and was quite quiet growing up, I also recognized that. And I recognized that I wanted to be more than that. And so I was actively putting myself out there and trying those things because I didn't want to live the course of my life not having done that and look back and be like, I was just this quiet person that never did anything. I didn't want that for me. Wow. The fact that you knew, you were self-aware to know that that was a place that you're at, that you wanted to push yourself to do something different. 
Okay. So you finished up university. And so obviously you've come back to Ottawa, you finished up university and you really went straight into corporate banking. And while you were working in investment banking, you went to a 420 party, which was pre-legalization. And while you're there, you met the owner of startup Tokyo Smoke at the time, startup Tokyo Smoke. And really for you, you had, from what I know, a quite a big lightning bolt moment happen that night. Can you share what happened? And also for listeners who don't know, what's a 420 party? So 420 is a bit of a cannabis celebration for the cannabis community. So April 20th of every single year. And so generally, a lot of cannabis companies nowadays, or just kind of friends and growing up, we pay homage to the cannabis culture on that day. And so also growing up in Ottawa, that's where you see the iconic images of people smoking on a Parliament Hill. And so it's really quite fun and interesting. And so 2017, that was the year this all kind of started. On April 20th, I was bouncing around a few parties I was going on in Toronto. And leading up to that point, I was already pretty frustrated with my current banking position. I was looking for more. For those who don't know, investment banking, you're an external third party advisor of sorts. And I just felt disconnected to the companies I was working with. I felt disconnected in the sense that I didn't really know what it was like to be in a company. And so why was I the authority figure in helping them advise on what to do with their company and what to do with a company strategy? And so I was looking for something more and I wanted to be part of a company. And I also had some experience in venture capital where I got to interact with some startups and I saw the passion that entrepreneurs had. And I didn't feel that when I was in banking. And so I just knew that I wanted some spark in my life. And so I was already actively looking for something different in from a career perspective. I actually thought that I was going to probably join like a, a tech startup just because it's such a vibrant ecosystem here in Toronto. And didn't really think about cannabis until 4-20-2017 and was already starting to think of what the industry could be because there was a lot of chatter about regulations in Canada. And I was already a little interested, but as soon as I was in that party, that's when the light bulb moment hit. And I was like, this is going to be huge. From an industry standpoint, in my lifetime, I didn't believe that there would be any other industry that was going to go through as big of a shift as cannabis, not just in Canada, but on a global scale. And I was instantly hooked to that. And plus, I love cannabis. I love consuming cannabis. So that was extra motivation. And then the people that I met at the party, I was just like, you're really cool people. I was stuck in my corporate ways. And the people that I interacted on a daily basis were other bankers, it was lawyers, it was suits and ties and all that. And being around other people who were just doing something completely different was really refreshing. And I fell in love with it. Sounds like you were curious about what was happening around you and in that industry. And then that night, it was just like, oh, wow, this is different. I want a piece of this. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. So then you took quite a risky leap. You left corporate banking to go work at a startup. Can you take us to that kind of emotional oh, I'm really going to do this. I'm really leaving to go into startup. Can you take us to that moment? And how did it feel to resign? What was it like in the lead up to that? Are you familiar with the Enneagram by chance? No, tell me. 
So Enneagram is, is slightly different from the Myers-Briggs, but it tries to really get into who you are and what motivates you as a person and how you show up in times of stress or how you show up when you're really energized. And so what I was going to say with regards to that is I'm a type one, which is a gut type, which means that I make a lot of my decisions and my motivation based on that, my gut feeling. And so arguably the decision to jump into a cannabis startup was really easy. As soon as I knew, I was like, this is it. I don't even want to look back on this. There was no flip-flopping. It wasn't like, oh, should I stay here? Should I stay for another year? My mind was made basically at the end of that night. And I was already planning my way out, which was also gave me some time to do some more traveling. So I do try to incorporate travel in my life. And so between the 420 party and me actually starting at Tokyo Smoke, I was able to be sent over by my bank to South Africa to do some work there and then taking some vacation in Africa before coming back and then quitting starting Tokyo Smoke. Seamless transition. It was very planned out and I was ready to go. (laughs) Wow. It sounds like I initially was thinking that there would be a little bit of hesitation just because it is corporate banking is deemed it's an industry that people know. So they're comfortable with it. And family and friends are like, oh, yeah, like you fit in a box. And to all of a sudden jump into another box, I would imagine there would be some risk. So I love that for you, it was the overriding feeling was your gut. Yeah, I had no hesitation. I would say the people around me were very apprehensive. And even after I started Tokyo Smoke, and over the last few years, I still get it. It's like my friends, my family would be like, why would you leave your high paying banking job that people work so hard to get to, to join this industry that isn't even legal yet, to join a startup that doesn't have a proven business model yet? Why would you do that? And I like to be naive to the risk to some degree. And I'm also still quite young and was younger at that time. And I was like, if I don't take this risk now, when am I taking that risk? Even when starting Super S Story, it's I don't have a mortgage. I don't have kids. I arguably don't have like real life responsibilities. So now is the time to explore and take those risks. Yeah. And is that what you would say to someone who didn't quite understand the cannabis industry and you making that leap? Is that the argument that you would have? Specifically for cannabis, I would say this is a huge opportunity and there's so much white space and there's so much room to grow. And so that in itself is super exciting. From a personal standpoint, it's I don't want to look back and regret. And so I'd rather take the risk. I'd rather make a mistake and learn from it and just be like, oh, I guess that was not the right thing to do, but at least have done it rather than sitting here and being like, oh, should I have done that? What could have happened? I don't want to be stuck in that feeling. What was your first day going to a startup like? It was pretty funny. I think one of the first things was, so I got my septum piercing if you can see, while I was in banking. But because it's very corporate, you can't show it. And I had it flipped up. It was more of a horseshoe rather than a hoop. And I was hiding my identity. So growing up in high school and university, I used to dye my hair a lot. I'm really into like tattoos and piercings. I had to hide a lot of who I was in banking. As soon as I started at Tokyo Smoke, I felt like I had the permission to be who I am. I had the permission 
to consume cannabis when I felt like it, to look the way I felt and how I conducted myself. It was very liberating from that standpoint. I think that was great. And a lot of how I act kind of in the workplace is still also a reminder of like how I don't want to act in corporate world. And it's been night and day. So nice to actually have the, as you said, and I love that word permission to be yourself. I think that is a beautiful place to step into because so often we get very trapped in ways that we believe that we should be in the world and in our workplace and we don't ever actually get to be ourselves. And I'm starting to see, which I love is as you're opening up to being who you are, how much your world around you is expanding. So basically you're 25, you're working this, we're going back in time, obviously. So you're like, I'm not 25. I'm like, I wish I was. (laughs) So going back in time, you're 25, you're working at Tokyo Smoke, you've got this huge title, Director of Corporate Development, and you're in an industry that you were very new to. And you're doing things like helping to raise capital and supporting and taking the company public. And really to later sell Tokyo Smoke to Canopy Growth for $250 million. I would imagine that takes huge kahunas and real belief in yourself to be standing in those rooms and having those conversations and and doing those negotiations, especially as a woman in this kind of quite dude world. Did you ever have a moment where you felt they wouldn't talk to a woman like this? I think that I grew a really thick skin really quickly. I built a lot of confidence in myself. I think what really helped was the pattern of being in conversations where I would initially doubt my knowledge and my skill set and very quickly realize that I might be the smartest person in the room or I did have the answer. And so I think about why I was brought into a company like Tokyo Smoke was because I represented a skill set and experience that no one else in the company had. And so I had to show up. And so it was also the belief that it was my responsibility to make sure that as a company, we were making the right decisions. If I was across the table doing a deal negotiation, that is my role and that is my responsibility. And so between the duty and the gaining confidence, I actually, from that standpoint, never think much about my identity as a female or a female of color. And I'd like to believe that people aren't judging me that way. And on the flip side, I'm not judging the other person that way either. I'm not going to automatically come into the room and say, because you are a 50 plus year old Caucasian male, I'm going to automatically assume that everything. I'm not going to come in with that assumption. And I'm going to assume that you're not going to make those judgments on my side as well. And I like hearing these almost like your little mantras in your head. It's I'm here for a reason. And sometimes I actually know quite a lot you have a lot of skill sets and a lot of knowledge. It's more of like, if I don't show up, who's going to hold me accountable? Like at the end of the day, I'm responsible for me. And so I better give it my all because I'm not going to half-ass anything that I do. It sounds like there has been definitely a lack of like half-ass moments in your life. That's for sure. So when I left corporate from Lululemon Athletica to pursue being an entrepreneur, it was this kind of full body visceral feeling of having to leave. Like I remember it being all through my body. And when Canopy Growth bought out Tokyo Smoke, they offered you quite a great role, but you said no. And it feels like this is a very, like yet again, to just put in your in your holster of pivotal moments. This feels like a really huge one because you've already left corporate 
to work in a startup and now you're going to leave to become an entrepreneur. So how did you know it was a no and that this new direction was the right one? Again, I knew in my gut. I saw how quickly the industry was shifting and so much innovation entrepreneurs making their own stand out there that I wanted to do that as well. And as much as the position that Canopy offered was great, I kind of looked at it with like, that's just another job. I have the confidence in myself that if all else fails, I can go get myself a job. I can do that. I can hire, I can go through a process, I can get a job. But to say that I'm going to do something for myself and create something, that was an opportunity I didn't want to leave up. And it was like perfect timing. And Canopy buying Tokyo's book was just like, from a permission standpoint, I felt Timing wise, it gave me permission to do something on my own and branch out. And reason why Superad even started was because we didn't feel like, and by saying we is my co-founder and I, we didn't feel like there was a retail concept for us. So we want to create something that was more resonant for us. And was that just like two mates sitting around shooting the shit being like, you know what? How did you find him and go, you know what? I think you and I would be really great business partners. How does that happen when you're working in a startup company and then that conversation starts to evolve? Yeah, so Drum and I have actually worked quite a bit together at Tokyo Smoke. We worked on things like winning the first master license in Manitoba for the Tokyo Smoke banner to creating the retail strategy for Tokyo Smoke across the country. What we really learned from each other was trust and work ethic. And so out of everyone at the Tokyo Smoke team, there are so many great people, but I think about the person that I could go to for whatever reason, whether it be something to celebrate or a problem, whether it was a work thing or a personal thing, it was always to drum. And I think it was vice versa. And so when we both saw that opportunity to do something, we figured, why not? We are so effective working together. How much more powerful could we be if we got to make our own decisions together? Fast forward to two years down the track, so because today is your anniversary. So fast forward and you've got your brand Superette and you've got that with Drummond. And fast forward from leaving Tokyo Smoke to Superette. That's a tight timeline, right? Like we're talking about a few months that it was like, okay, let's make this happen. Feels like it was quite a quick uh, move. A few weeks. No? A few weeks. It was quicker. Wow. Okay. That's even more impressive. few weeks. <laughs> So two years down the track, and you've actually got this award-winning retail and lifestyle brand. And the branding as well is schmick as. Like, I love the attention to detail. I've been into your space. I love the whole experience. And it's a really beautifully well-thought-out space. It's quite interesting because there's a lot of growth in the design side of the cannabis industry. And a lot of places you walk into have this kind of, I don't want to say cold, but this very Apple store feeling that I feel like people are going for. Sterile. There we go. There's the word I'm going for. Yeah. And that's very different to yours. For yours, it's the vibe is feminine and it's fun and there's a great mood to it. So can you tell me about where your inspiration came from and details around the space? Because I love it. Yeah. I mean, first of all, I love that you love the experience and I love that you did not feel stuck in that when you were at their our Toronto store. Honestly, we wanted to pay homage to neighborhood institutions. And so we wanted to make sure that we were like your friendly neighbor down the street, no matter where we went. 
And so as opposed to that Apple store approach, we drew our inspiration from bodegas, from delis, diners. We want to be that place that you go to and the person behind the counter knows your name, they know your order. That's our vibe. And so we wanted to make sure that even though we're in an industry that's highly stigmatized, there's still a lot of fear and apprehension around it, we could still be that safe space and also be really fun. And I think that because it's such a regulated industry, a lot of people and a lot of groups weren't willing to take risks. But we wanted to be bold from a color scheme to our brand elements. We're out there. We're proud that we're in cannabis. But it also makes it pretty clear that cannabis doesn't define who we are and doesn't define who you are. We want to honor your daily rituals as much as your cannabis rituals. Yeah, right. And that feeling of it being really approachable and fun and it feeling like your neighborhood store, it really felt like that. And I must say, I just have to like major kudos to you, the direct phone line in the Toronto store to the burger joint up the road. You have absolutely won me. It's that attention to detail. I really love that in the space. And it's nice to see it done in a way that reflects a brand that is really playful and really fun. Because for someone like me, I'm very new to the cannabis industry. And I was one of the people that stigmatized it. I was afraid of it. I felt uncomfortable about it. Going into like my first dispensary, I was like, do I have to cover my face? I felt very nervous about it. And I only had that one experience. And there's a lot of people, because I've been in Australia for 20 years, it's, it's not even close to where we're at there. And so even trying to communicate what a dispensary is like to listeners that aren't in a place that have dispensaries, it's really interesting, I think, for them to hear the difference between what your experience provides them. Yeah. And, and if you think about that, it's actually kind of sad that all of us, generally speaking, feel that way when we go into dispensaries. Because if you think about why you consume cannabis, most of the time you're consuming cannabis because you want to feel better. And better can mean different things for different people. It can mean fun. It can feel energized. But that wasn't mirrored in the retail experience. It's I'm going to somewhere where I don't feel comfortable in order to consume something to make me feel comfortable. And that just felt really weird. And so we were like, what if we can make the retail experience fun? What if we made the retail experience as enjoyable as consuming it? And have your parents been to your store? I think they visited the Ottawa store. Okay, cool. Yeah. Not, they definitely think? not the Toronto one. Don't know what they think, really. I don't think being in cannabis is their favorite thing about me, but there are some things that I can't change their minds about. I think that for a lot of people, there are so many industries that aren't typical of the generation before us. And to actually be in a place where we're taking risks, sometimes you have to push against the expectations about who we are, what we're going to be doing, and to still go down the road that you're going down is a real testament to just who you are, that you're really, it's all about trusting your gut and doing what it is that you want to do. Totally. The cannabis industry has always looked super polished from the outside, but I know that it is much more the Wild West. And it's this industry that you're like, the learning is fast and furious, that you're always on your feet and that things can change all the time, like procedures, policies. I've heard a lot about that from the outside. So can you take us back to before you opened your doors and share what time was like and what were you facing day to day? Because I've read some of it and it was crazy. 
Oh, it's messy. It was a messy one for sure. So you have a few things. You have, from a regulation standpoint, lots of changes. So when we started Super at two years ago, it was a fully private system in Ontario. So which meant that in the province of Ontario, anyone can apply for a license, you can have open up to 75 stores, licensing was going to begin at the end of the year. And that was what the system was. And then two months down the road in, in December, the government said, Nope, we're not doing that anymore. We're doing a lottery system. And we're only issuing 25 licenses. And so the hundreds of people who were hoping to create something were now funneled down to 25. But not just the 25 that were serious about the industry, because it was an open lottery, literally anyone could apply for it. So it was not a system that necessarily made a lot of sense. But regardless, that's what happened. And so we had to shift how we approached our business and with the decisions that we made. And then during that time, we've gone through other rounds of lotteries. And now we're back to an open system. But all at the same time, you're under this heavily regulated body, which watches essentially your every move. So we can't just operate like a normal startup. We can't just be like, oh, we're startups or we're going through the startup growing pains. It's you're going through the startup growing pains, but you're still held to a standard that's more regulated than any other industry out there. And how do you navigate that then? That sounds like the ground is shifting below your feet all the time. Always. I mean, the element is just being flexible. We've been really, really good at staying nimble and changing course when we need to. That's been a huge strength. So we're not stuck in our ways. And I think that's an important asset to have, regardless of the industry that you're in, just making sure that you can make those shifts when you need to. I think being informed is also really important. And so I do have a really wide network of industry contacts that help me stay grounded and keep my ears to the ground as to what is going on and any potential shifts. And having good communication, I think, in our team as well to make sure that if there's any large shifts that happens, that that gets uh, gets disseminated throughout the rest of the company and that we can make things get things done quickly. So you said you were in an open lottery system again. Is that anything like because the first one I know there was like 35,000 applicants, which the government made, was it $24 million just because it was like $700 to apply. So I was thinking if there were 35,000 applicants, that's like $24 million, $24.5 million. The government was like, all right, thanks so much for applying. So pocket it. <laughs> no, I don't think the application fee was um, taking me way back. I don't remember the exact numbers. I thought it was like something $75 or something. It wasn't that high, which lowered the barrier of entry, which is the reason why there were so Ooh. many entries. I don't think the government necessarily made that much money off of it. But it was still a very weird system to start this industry in. Yeah. It just sounds like it is mired in procedures and policies. And it sounds like it's a lot to initially get your head around it all. Yeah. And I think a lot of people who are in the industry or just joining the industry might not necessarily have thought that through before coming in. The amount of regulatory oversight and... I think about inventory counts and reporting that needs to be done on a weekly or monthly basis. Those are things you need to be on top of. 
you've seen a little Netflix show. I watched Business of Drugs, and it's just about the cannabis industry in the U.S. And just hearing that, like, it does sound like it's quite an industry to be in that, as you said in the beginning, when you were walking into those rooms and developing quite a thick skin, it sounds like you have to have a little bit of a thick skin, but then, as you said, to be quite nimble in the industry. For sure. And I would also say, like, as much as I talk about regulation a lot, we don't let it take over our lives. And I think the other perspective that we take is it's easy to bucket us in like the cannabis industry and we're a cannabis retailer. But arguably, the way we like to make the decisions and how we grow as a brand, as a company is we're just a retailer. Yes, we sell cannabis, but we are retail first. And so how do we take retail fundamentals? How do we think about our brand and communicate our brand as if we're not in cannabis rather than let regulations and like the notion of cannabis hold us down? Oh, I like the flip on that. That's a nice way to approach it. It's a very different energy towards it, too. It's all perspective. All perspective. Exactly. (laughs) Shannon Huffman-Polson, who's the author of The Grit Factor, said that having grit really helps us see that how we've approached challenges in the past really inform how we approach them in the future. And I'm curious, what strengths do you feel that you developed from these pivots that you faced in your life? I definitely feel like it's, if you don't get what you want, at least you got a learning experience. And so I try to look at everything from that angle. I try to have a really open mind. I think I've been pleasantly surprised on the outcome on, of, of certain situations in the past. And so that's allowed me to build a lot of internal strength. I also think that one of the biggest strengths that is required, especially in a startup, is listening. Listening to what your team needs, listening to what the customer needs, what the business needs, and being able to take in those different perspectives is invaluable. And I use that kind of like in my everyday life, but also from a business standpoint. And to be a good listener as well, do you feel that you're someone who's quite cool under pressure? I feel like people who are good listeners are tend to be people who are like, ooh, I got this. It depends is going to be my cop-out answer. It really depends. So generally, I do tend to stay pretty cool, especially in my current position. I can't be the one that just lashes out just reactively to everything. Try to take all the different pieces of the information, make sure I have all the perspectives and considering everything, and then figure out what the best course is. I try to stay pretty rational and logical is the way I like to put it. But if I get pushed to a certain extent or something is completely out of plan, I do have my moments of weakness. Now, you're sitting with this incredible title right now, which is warranted for what you're doing, and you're a CEO. This is the first time you've been a CEO. So how would you describe skills that you need to be a great CEO? First of all, I hate that title. Oh, right. I know that's like how the world views me, but I honestly, I hate that title. What would you rather be? I'd be like team cheerleader. I view my role as how can I best support and elevate the members of my team. I'm support staff. And so that's how I view my role. If you even look at my email signature, like there's no title there. I don't want to be like, oh, I'm this big CEO. Like I hate that. I'm just part of the crew. I'm here to support. And that's what I do. I look at my days and how I spend my energy. It's how can I help the rest of the members of my team? Because I'm not doing everything. And there's no way that I can. And the best ideas come from the rest of the crew. This is fascinating to hear because I feel like so many people love a good title. 
you have this very fresh perspective of just like everything that you're doing, even down to the role, instead of being someone who wants to hold on to a role like CEO, I want to be a team cheerleader. It shows this brilliant pivot just in the way that you're doing business. And it's really refreshing. It's really nice to hear. I mean, I think about like what energizes me and letters on a page that indicate title don't do it for me. I think being able to do cool things with cool people, way more rewarding and what I'm here for. That tagline, like cool things with cool people is fantastic. I love that. (laughs) Can you tell us when a pivot that you did didn't go right? Many little things on the business side, but I would say our initial direction for Superette was no longer viable given the change in regulations. And to put that in perspective, because before when everyone can open up to 75 stores, we targeted how many potential locations could we secure. And so we canvassed the entire province. We looked at locking up properties and a lot of groups were doing that at that time. Come December, that was no longer relevant. And we didn't want to be holding on to those properties. And so that was the initial kind of business direction that we had to change really quickly from because it was no longer something that we could do. And so I think what really helped us in situations like that is, again, regrouping and figuring out how we want to move forward. I think in situations where when a direction or a pivot doesn't go well, it's easy to feel lost and defeated and just give up. I do know people who have given up in this industry, but I think it's bringing it back down to what do you want to achieve? Why are we here? And really push through with the best way possible. Yeah. And how about you in your personal life? Trusted your gut on something or did you pivot on something and you're like, ooh, that did not go right? A little bit of an inside scoop. I was supposed to get married this year. Oh, so that is something that had to get quite derailed over the course of the last few months. And that's something that when you face situations like that, it just becomes emotionally challenging. But in the grand scheme of things, not a challenge. And so again, it comes back to perspective. I think about why I'm with my partner and the love that we have for each other has nothing to do with a singular day. Nothing would realistically change, even if we got married. And so we've just punted the plans to to next year, essentially. But going through something like that, you just have to take it into perspective. And sometimes you just got to laugh about it. Regardless of what happens in this world and what happens in 2020 and beyond, I'm very lucky as a person. And I'm very grateful for that. And I really am in no position to complain about anything, business or personnel. And I think that's what grounds me a lot of the time. What are you grateful for today, Mimi? Today, I'm grateful for this. I'm grateful (laughs) that we get to have this amazing conversation. So after someone finishes this podcast and they hear your story and they hear about how you, from what I hear, is uncovered this real strength to stand in your, your authentic self, like your true being of who you are, and to jump into a world you didn't know about and to really be brave in listening to your inner calling and your gut feeling, your you, like what you want. Do you have any words of wisdom for people facing pivots or challenges that might push them out of their comfort zone? I would say go for it. I think thinking about it is halfway up the hill. The fact that you're spending your mind space and your energy 
thinking about something that could be so momentous in your life or in your career, that is an indication. And if you weren't thinking about it, it probably wasn't the right time or the right thing for you. And so if you're already there in your head, go for it. You don't want to live with regret. And I think that if we live in the moment and cherish the moments that we do have on this planet, if that's what you want, just don't let that hold you back. Don't let yourself hold you back. As we wrap up, I have a speed round of five questions that I want to hit you with. So are you ready? (laughs) Ready. (laughs) All right, here we go. Rapid fire speed round. Number one, moment you first felt like an adult. When I had to book my first dentist appointment. And how old were you doing that? When I first moved to Toronto, so like 21, 22, around there. I was like, I'm a real adult now. I have to take care of my body. (laughs) Number two, piano or electric keyboard? Piano, all the way. All the way, why so? I mean, I grew up as a classically trained pianist. The nuances that you get from a good acoustic instrument something you can't get from an electric one. I feel like that's going to be part of the book, that book from your childhood that could be like the last page. (laughs) What's your spirit animal? So I don't have a real spirit animal, but I would say I look up to to serpents a lot and to snakes and transformation. I actually have this massive thigh tattoo that is a serpent. And I just think of it as like my transformation as well. Like I'm always changing, always shifting. And that's something that really resonates with me. Love it. Flour or oil? So it depends. My other cop-out answer. Nothing beats a good joint when I'm hanging out with friends or like the ritual of rolling a joint and having a puff on the patio. But sometimes I use cannabis for sleep or for my anxiety and oil is one way that I prefer. One little sneaky question is fill in the blank for me. Okay. Being brave is? Being brave is the best because it allows you to take on those risks and it allows you to get that sense of freedom. It allows you to make those big decisions that you wouldn't be able to make if you weren't brave. So I think being brave is the best. I literally want to get that on shirt. I love that. Being brave is the best. It's just such a perfect, simple statement. Thank you so much, Mimi. Superette is definitely an incredible leader in the cannabis industry. And I'm really grateful to see businesses like yours that are really pushing inclusivity and being environmentally responsible and being about community. It's really nice to see. So if you want to find out more about Superette, you can visit the podcast page on seekerloverdreamer.com. You can find Superette, you can follow them, you can track them down. Thank you so much for your honesty, really for your transparency and showing people that being brave and following their gut and that being brave is the best (laughs) and can really lead you to amazing things. You're amazing, Mimi. Thank you so much. Thank you for giving me the space. This is really fun. Oh, thank you. And happy to your anniversary. That's Mimi Lamb co-founder and CEO, or rather team cheerleader of Superette. Hey, thanks so much for listening to the show and for joining me in exploring the upside of the unexpected to see that life isn't a straight line. And thank goodness, because that is where the magic in life lies. You can subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcast, and you can find all the links and resources from this episode in the episode notes. If you have any feedback or want to send me a note, I'd love to hear your thoughts. 
send me a DM on Instagram at didn't see that coming underscore underscore. I'm Zoe Weldon, and you've been listening to Didn't See That Coming. Until next time, keep looking for the magic on the other side of the unexpected. And I love being brave is the best. <laughs> <laughs> that, that definitely caught me. I was like, what do I say? <laughs>